Hello, and welcome to The Worldly Philosophers Go to Washington, from Alexander Hamilton to Janet Yellen. Today's episode, Bankers and Generals. Both the constitutionality and expediency of the law creating the bank were well questioned by a large portion of our fellow citizens. And it must be admitted by all that it has failed in the great hand of establishing a uniform and sound currency. These were the words of Andrew Jackson in his first State of the Union message to Congress. By uniform and sound currency, Jackson simply meant a metallic currency that could not be trampled by banks, that would overissue paper currency, overextend credit, and lead to financial excesses. As the Jeffersonian, Jackson abhorred banks, debt, and paper currency. Jackson, the champion of democracy that caused as much fear as hope in the hearts of his fellow countrymen, was not well-versed in the world of philosophy as some of his predecessors, in particular Thomas Jefferson himself. Perhaps only with John Fitzgerald Kennedy, uh, the United States would have a president with uh, comparable economic knowledge to that of Jefferson. Not only Jackson held relatively simplistic views on the economy, he also was less amenable to advice and his counselors and confidence were not luminaries of the world of philosophy like Dupont de Nemours or, or practical men like Andrew Gallatin, uh, Jefferson's Treasury Secretary. By the time of his election, however, he, he was not fully committed to a hard money anti-bank agenda. Even though he was from the West and a slave owner, it was not completely clear that he would expose a free trade agenda. Friedrich Liszt, the German immigrant that had further uh, developed uh, the ideas of uh, Alexander Hamilton and, and was trying to publish a book on, on ideas behind uh, the American system of manufacturing, which would be uh, uh, published in German in 1841 and then translated as the National System of Political Economy, was in fact a, a Jackson supporter. Uh, he, he was certainly a promoter of manufacturing arts and committed to the notion that prosperity required industrialization. Uh, and that was only possible with uh, some degree of protection and support from government. Um, I should say here that uh, Joseph Dorfman uh, tells us uh, that his book was uh, you know, originally planned uh, to be uh, called American political economy, and that um, his support for Jackson led to a position as American counsel in, in Leipzig, uh, and that the financial panic of 1837, uh, which to some extent was caused by Jackson's policies, as we will discuss, uh, you know, he, he lost a great deal of his fortune in, in, in that crisis, and, and, and of course, later disappointments in life led to, to him uh, taking his own life. Uh, the bank wars, uh, the debates on the necessity of a bank and paper currency were as old as the nation and, and, and in fact, if we take the pleas for land banks as their first manifestation, they were older than the Republic. Uh, Alexander Hamilton defended the constitutionality of the first bank of the United States, created in 1791, and Jefferson and his followers uh, tried to undermine the Federalist arguments. By the time of uh, James Madison presidency, um, the constitutionality of the bank uh, was doubted by Democratic Republicans, the party of Jefferson. 
they saw the bank and the manufacturing and commercial interests behind it as being pernicious for the future of the Republic. And for that reason, the bank charter was not extended in 1811. In a close and, and tied vote in the Senate, George Clinton, Vice President of both Jefferson and Madison, casted the tie-breaking vote that uh, precluded the rechartering of the bank. The War of 1812 changed everything. It generated a clear sense, even in Jeffersonian circles, that the bank was necessary for funding the government. Uh, and uh, the First Bank of the United States was, uh, you know, I should hear a footnote, the First Bank of the United States was purchased by Stephen Girard, um, a Philadelphia merchant, and was instrumental in financing uh, the government during the war. Um, once again, circumstances uh, and pragmatism turn anti-bank Jeffersonians into uh, defenders of a bank. Uh, by 1816, the Second Bank of the United States was chartered, and among one of its directors, appointed in 1819, was Nicholas Biddle, uh, who would become, by 1823, uh, the president of the bank. Uh, the stage was set for the second round of, uh, of the bank wars. The timing of uh, Biddle's appointment uh, to the board um, of directors of the bank could not have been more turbulent and less suspicious. The Panic of 1819 was the first significant financial crisis of the United States. The, the other candidate uh, would be the Panic of 1792. However, it's far from clear that uh, a recession, you know, a significant recession or even a significant financial crisis uh, took place at, at that time. Um, <clears throat> the Panic of uh, 1819 was the first of a series of financial crises, boom and bust cycles that would become common throughout the 19th century. And, and that would eventually lead to the development of a theory of business cycles. Um, Biddle was appointed to his post uh, uh, by the president, James Monroe, and he was decidedly a Jeffersonian, as any young man that wished for a political future at that time. Uh, and it's important to clarify, even John Quincy Adams, the son of, of John Adams, the other uh, leader of the Federalist Party with Alexander Hamilton, uh, would become a Democratic Republican and serve as Secretary of State to James Monroe. Um, and I say this because uh, the popular historian H.W. Uh, Brands has argued that Biddle's politics and economics were Hamiltonian. Um, uh, in contrast, uh, Dorfman tells us that in, in 1811, uh, you know, uh, and here I quote, the Jeffersonian State Senator Nicholas Biddle defended the Bank of the United States Citing Stewart, he declared that banks are the natural source of obtaining money in emergencies. In other words, uh, he might have been favorable to banks in Hamiltonian fashion, but politically there was little doubt that he was a, a Jeffersonian. Biddle um, even delivered in 1826 uh, Jefferson's eulogy before the American Philosophical Society. Uh, by the early 19th century, financial cycles uh, have be had become more common. Uh, the tradition in, in traditional agrarian societies, booms and busts are ultimately connected to years of good or bad crops. In mercantile societies, with a large manufacturing sector and a significant need for credit, booms and busts become more regular. In this particular period, after the Napoleonic Wars, 
um, <clears throat> a boom in, in the production of textile goods in, in the Lancashire region of England led to an increase in the price of cotton and a concomitant increase in spending in the United States. Increasing demand for British manufacturers and higher levels of indebtedness, in particular in the southern states, and, uh, were possible as a result of the British boom in cotton mills, uh, which led to an expansion of wealth associated to the plantation system and, of course, uh, slavery. The expansion of demand for cotton led to the higher uh, price of cotton and, in addition, to higher prices uh, for land. Land speculation, particularly related to the expansion of canals, also played a role. The United States essentially exported uh, uh, commodities to England. Besides cotton, wheat and flour were important exports. The move in England that occurred with the end of the Napoleonic Wars um, and, and a series of good crops that reduced the price of wheat and lowered uh, the cost of production um, um, went also with a, a diversion of uh, demand from American to Indian cotton, causing uh, eventually a collapse of the price of cotton and the beginning of a crisis in the United States. Uh, the collapse of the price of commodities, wheat, cotton, uh, you know, um, and the indebtedness of farmers and planters uh, who were unable to repay their loans uh, led eventually to defaults and, and bank runs. In the view of the agrarian populists that certainly counted uh, the victor of the Battle of New Orleans as a prominent figure, the crisis resulted from the neo-federalist policies implemented during the Monroe administration. Uh, the higher tariffs, the support of, for public works, and the founding of the Second Bank of the United States were the problem. Jefferson, now an elder statement, also spoke against the excessive commercial interest of the time. Jefferson said that neo-federalist policies were implemented by politicians that were Republicans only in name, and that they wanted a government, and here I quote, founded on banking institutions and moneyed in corporations under the guise of their favored branches of manufacturers, commerce, and navigation, riding and ruling over the plundered plowman and beggared yeomanry. Monroe was succeeded by his Secretary of State, Quincy Adams, in a political bargain with Henry Clay that cemented the new political divide between Clay's Whigs and the Democrats linked to Martin Van Buren and Jackson himself. By the time of Jackson's victory in 1828, the canal mania, funded essentially by floating bonds that were sold mostly to Europeans, was in full swing. Uh, the Erie Canal had opened in 1825, and many other projects to connect the Trans-Appalachian West to the eastern seaboard were underway. Railroads, too, started incipiently to divert the trade that went under normal circumstances down the Ohio and the Mississippi to New Orleans. By 1827, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad started to operate, and the production of commodities from western states started flowing to New York and other eastern cities and directly into the Atlantic trade. The free trade and sound currency policies that were favored by Jackson would have a significantly different uh, sectional effects. Um, the South that produced cotton for export um, uh, to England and were um, 
and where manufacturing and commercial needs for credit were limited, uh, would be favorable to his policies. While northern and, and central states uh, that during the period of the embargo and the war had developed a significant manufacturing base would be considerably less favorable and would support a continuation of the so-called American system. The two archetypes of, of for the nation, uh, the Smithian manufacturing nation versus the physiocratic agrarian model, were still very much in dispute. In the banking arena, Biddle and Jackson would represent the leaders of uh, the polarizing nation. To some extent, as the result of Biddle's actions, uh, that was anxious about the future of bank, rechartering became the central issue of the 1832 election. Jackson vowed in his re-election bid to veto the renewal of the Charter of the Central Bank of the United States. After re-election, he also decided to take the federal government deposits from the bank, reducing its ability uh, to regulate uh, credit in the economy. Government uh, deposits guaranteed, res you know, guaranteed reserves in specie and the liquidity of the bank. If the bank discounted the notes of other commercial banks, this would also be seen as safe. Given the size and the number of the branches of the Second Bank of the United States, it had effectively the power to regulate credit in the country, like the Bank of England. Andrew Gallatin, um, in fact, uh, praised the bank as uh, doing exactly that. The bank charter was not renewed, and by 1836, it was operating on a Pennsylvania charter with a significantly diminished role, and by the early 1840s, in fact, it was closed. The canal and railroad boom uh, were already under course and the regulatory ab abilities uh, of, of the bank were now gone. The unwillingness to commit to the federal government to public works and the preoccupation with bringing down federal public debt, which in fact paid down, uh, led to a credit boom funded by state bond issuance. Interest would be paid out of the revenue of canals and, and railroads. Uh, the success of the Erie Canal uh, attracted investors, uh, mostly European, as I noticed. Land speculation in the West particularly led to overinvestment in transportation schemes that ultimately could not be repaid, uh, since there was simply not enough traffic to generate revenue for so many competing schemes. At the same time, hard money interests were emboldened, and in 1836, uh, Jackson passed the Specie Circular that required that government lands uh, had to be paid in gold or silver. Uh, the objective uh, was to undercut the expansion of credit uh, and wildcat banks and excessive land speculation in the West. Um, <clears throat> and, and of course, the excessive uh, issuance of paper currency. Uh, the reduction of the species reserved in the banking sector were compounded by the high rates of interest uh, of the Bank of England that was trying to recompose its own reserves at that time. The slowdown of the English economy also had a negative impact on the price of cotton, once again. And the contraction of credit that reduced the price of commodities uh, and overinvestment in canals and railroads led to a collapse of the economy. Jackson was lucky enough to have left uh, the presidency by then and, and the crisis occurred during Martin Van Buren's term. Many states defaulted under that, and at least three of them, Arkansas, Florida, and Mississippi, all in the South, never repaid their debts. The other only 
significant case of a persistent default in which the resolution favored debtors rather than creditors, meaning in which debtors' debts were never repaid, would be the case of the debts incurred by the Confederate States uh, during the Civil War. The victory of hard money views in the United States led to a period of free banking with the absence of uh, a public bank and a regulatory agency. In contrast to England, where the eventual victory of the same hard money views led to a centralization of the authority of the Bank of England and the consolidation of its role as the central bank and regulator of financial markets. Some would suggest that it's uh, only at this stage that the Bank of England truly becomes a modern uh, central bank. Um, in fact, Sir Robert Peel's uh, Bank Act of 1844 is the period in which the banknotes of the Bank of England uh, do become a legal tender and uh, other banks, uh, country banks, are forbidden to print paper currency. Uh, the debates that characterize the bank wars in the United States, like the previous debates about the need for paper currency or the relative advantages uh, of agrarian and manufacturing societies, ultimately follow the dominant views in England. Yeah. In England, the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars forced the Bank of England to stop the convertibility of the pound from 1797 until 1819, and only in 1821 convertibility to gold was fully accomplished. In the context of what became known as the bullionist controversy, two views emerged in England. David Ricardo uh, was the quintessential bullionist author uh, that blamed inflation on the Bank of England, while uh, Thomas took uh, essentially took a <laughs> essentially a follower, I should say, of Ricardian political economy, disagreed with his with the master on that, and and in his monumental history of prices provided overwhelming evidence for the anti-Bullionist view. Took suggested that, and here I quote, the prices of commodities do not depend upon the quantity of money indicated by the amount of banknotes, nor upon the amount of the whole of the circulating median. But on the contrary, the amount of the circulated median is the consequence of prices. The anti-Bullionist views were similar to Adam Smith's real bills doctrine, and compatible with Franklin's defense of paper currency. On the other hand, Ricardo and his followers in the so-called currency school uh, later on uh, were against paper currency and argued that inflation was caused by the excessive amount of currency in circulation caused by the Bank of England. Uh, the supporters of, um, of uh, paper currency in the banking school argued that inflation was the result of real problems in the economy, arguing along similar lines as Hamilton had when he suggested that inflation during the Revolutionary War was caused by the higher cost of food related to the troubles of producing them during war with less workers available and the difficulty of obtaining imported goods. For them, bad crops, the difficulties of importing foodstuff, wheat from the continent as a result of the embargo imposed by Napoleon during the war, were the real sources of inflation. The Bank of England was forced to provide more credit for an economy that essentially already had higher prices. Uh, the heightened tensions of uh, the period, which had led to increasing protests and breaking of cotton mill machines by the Luddites, um, made the Ricardian ideas seem dangerous. The ideas of Ricardian socialists and of Robert Owen and other utopian socialists 
uh, and the rise of trade unions and demands for the expansion of the franchise of you know, voting rights led many political economists to abandon the classical political economy framework and emphasize a non-conflictive view of society. In particular, the ideas of uh, Nassau Sr., a post-Ricardian economist that emphasized the harmony between capital and labor and, and had argued that profits were not a residual of the production process appropriated by capitalists as a result of their ownership of the means of production, but instead the remuneration for the abstinence from consumption and a reward for the services rendered by capital became popular. If classical political economy was being abandoned in England and an apologetic discourse uh, was becoming dominant, then the works of Frederick Bastiat and Harriet Martineau were among the most important popularizers of the new found free market doctrine uh, of social harmony. In the United States, where uh, the rise of the Democratic Party and the election of Andrew Jackson also highlighted social tensions, the increasing popularity of post-recording political economy was also visible, reflecting the developments uh, in the United Kingdom. Um, but in the United States, sectional differences were central to social conflicts rather than the rapid advance of industrialization and class conflict. If anything, sectional conflict precluded the clear victory of the industrialization model for the country. The adherence to both free trade and hard currency in the South and the American manufacturing system with a preference for some degree of protection and bank credit in the North reflected this uh, sectional interest and the way the different regions had adapted uh, to the English Industrial Revolution. Political economists in both uh, groups accepted the vulgar post-Ricardian notion that distribution did not reflect class conflict. Uh, Thomas Cooper, for example, a Southerner and a Jeffersonian, wrote that uh, with the policies of the American system, and here I quote, we of the South hold our plantations as the serfs and operatives of the North, subject to the orders and laboring for the benefit of the masterminds of Massachusetts, the lords of the spinning jenny, and the peers of the power loom. Henry Carey, uh, who can be described as one of the key American political economists uh, that developed these post-recording ideas in the United States, uh, defended the American system. Um, Marx uh, correctly pointed out uh, the vulgar nature of Carey's political economy. He said that the fact that, and here I quote, bourgeois society in the United States uh, has not yet developed far enough to make uh, the class struggle, class struggle, pardon me, obvious and comprehensible is most strikingly proved by H.C. Carey of Philadelphia, the only American economist of importance. Um, he was the son of Matthew Carey, a prominent publisher in Philadelphia and a political economist in his own right, and also a relatively wealthy merchant. Uh, after amassing some fortune himself, uh, like David Ricardo, he dedicated his time to write pamphlets and textbooks on, on political economy. His ideas were influential. He was cited by Bastiat. Uh, in fact, he uh, even accused Bastiat of plagiarizing his ideas um, and, and uh, criticized by John Stuart Mill, who would become the main political economist of this time in England. He followed the so-called wage fund doctrine, 
that was a step in the direction of Arwen that real wages reflected the productivity of workers and that supply and demand in the labor market determined the level of employment. These were all departures from classical political economy. Um, it is worth noticing uh, that Carey's views on trade changed over time. Initially, he followed his father, favoring some degree of, profession, uh, of protection. Uh, but interestingly enough, his first publications on political economy were in favor of free markets and following European vulgar economists like Bastiat for free trade. Tariffs uh, had been reduced uh, in the 1830s under Jackson, and Carey saw that favorably. His views were not radical. Uh, he certainly uh, was for a minor degree of protection in order to promote uh, some manufacturing in Pennsylvania. Um, like his father, he was a defender of the Bank of the United States, as expected from a merchant in, in the central state of Pennsylvania. Um, he was for the expansion of credit and, and the banks that allowed that uh, and were instrumental for mercantile uh, development. But after the Panic of 1837 uh, and the following disruptions, uh, while he still sided with the view that inflation was not caused by banks and excessive credit, uh, he started to change his views on trade and the need uh, for protection. When the importation of higher, you know, the imposition, pardon me, of uh, higher tariffs in 1842 seemed to help the recovery of the economy, uh, he turned uh, decisive, decisively uh, in favor of protectionism. His theoretical flip-flop on tariffs reflects uh, the fact that um, in the United States, contrary to England, the urban pro-bank manufacturing arguments required some degree of protectionism. Um, it has been argued that Kerry, and here I quote, uh, evolved from a fervent free trader to one of the most influential 19th century proponents of protectionism in uh, the United States. Um, also, the relative degree of confusion in economic theory during the post-Ricardian theory after the fall of classical political economy and before a new dominant paradigm uh, entered the scene allowed for some degree of eclecticism and certainly Carey uh, reflects uh, that uh, eclecticism in his views. Uh, the bank wars between uh, Nicholas Biddle and Andrew Jackson, Andrew Jackson uh, reflect, um, to some extent, the same disputes that were central uh, for the worldly philosophy between the Bullionist and the anti-Bullionist in England. Uh, the period from the War of 1812 to, to the Civil War, a period characterized by the decline of classical um, political economy in England and before the rise of marginalist ideas, is perhaps the period in which political economists had the least influence in, in economic policymaking in the United States. Henry Clay uh, did praise Matthew Carey, uh, the father, and, and his ideas about protection and Hamiltonian ideas received a more systematic presentation in the works of Friedrich Liszt. Uh, but their direct influence on policymaking was relatively minor. Political economy was dominated by simplistic and vulgar notions about how free markets produce harmonious and efficient outcomes. Uh, these were not yet uh, the formal ideas of uh, neoclassical economists. Uh, the books by Harriet Martineau that uh, toured the United States in the 1830s are perhaps the best example of these ideas. Her views on the advantages of laissez-faire had a broad audience, uh, but given the sectional differences in the United States, her views were better received in the South, at least up to the point 
that she made her abolitionist views uh, public and forced her to go back to England. The Economist uh, newspaper, as they refer uh, to themselves, uh, um, started to be published in England in 1843, fundamentally to promote free trade and 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 the elimination of the so-called corn laws, the reduction, uh, you know, the elimination of the tariffs on imported grains, uh, and it's perhaps the, the finest example of the dominance of uh, laissez-faire uh, views uh, of the moment, uh, and they went hand in hand in England with uh, with uh, some uh, finance and and hard currency views. But while in England. Uh, by this time, the Ricardian model of uh, an industrializing urban nation was already victorious. In, in the United States, uh, the, the country remained, uh, and 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 you know, and and the very expansion of the British manufacturing sector fueled, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the country remained divided, and the agrarian slave-based mono commodity exporting economy of, of the South uh, uh, precluded uh, industrialization. The naive views uh, about harmony between capital and labor, the advantages of laissez-faire, free trade, and South currency were common sense, and they, they did provide Andrew Jackson with a simple dogma on which to build uh, his economic policies. Uh, but these ideas would have uh, a more turbulent life in the Americans than in Europe. Uh, not only the two models of the country remain side by side, uh, uh, an industrializing North and an agrarian South, but also the expansion of the frontier um, and uh, the issue of slavery created a further and unsurmountable obstacle to compromise. Early in the life of the Republic, uh, even defenders of the agrarian South like Jefferson had been had seen slavery as a necessary evil. But by the 1830s, it was defended by John C. Calhoun Vice President under both uh, Quincy Adams and Jackson as a positive good. The coexistence of the two models of the country and the main issue between them and a peculiar institution were unsustainable and would inexorably uh, lead to a collision. So uh, I hope uh, that's the topic, of course, of our next. Uh, of our next uh, episode, uh, Slavery and the Dismal Science. I hope you can join us uh, for, for a new episode of uh, The Worldly Philosophers Go to Washington from Alexander Hamilton to Janet Yellen. Thank you.